So I'll invite you again as you listen to keep both inner and outer awareness in some way. The theme of the talk this evening is wisdom and speech practice. And I've enjoyed the chance to develop a a flow in the talks that brings us to wisdom tonight. We started off in the evening looking at uh, an overview of the place of speech practice in relationship to the path of awakening. Focusing first, especially, on the ethical principles that are a core part of that path awakening, and and particularly the principles related to speech as um, initial access point. And we've also looked at mindfulness practice and its relation to speech practice, how we develop mindfulness in relation to speech, how we can be speaking and cultivating mindfulness at the same time. We also looked at the special role, really, of um, speech centered in warmth or love or loving kindness. It's a really vital aspect of, of developing speech practice. And that could, for some of us, that could be the only speech practice we do for the next 10 years. And if we really focused on it well, you might come back here and be teaching. In any case, uh, it, would, it would be very profitable. And the other, I think the other aspects of speech would come into play as well, the other ways of developing in speech practice. And, and tonight I want to explore particularly the sense of wisdom in relation to speech practice. And what I've enjoyed about the sequence is that there's a way both to touch on the fundamentals of Buddhist practice, maybe in the sense of spiritual practice, to touch on the fundamentals, but do so always making the connections with our speech practice. And in a way, showing how all of these core elements of practice inform our speech practice, and in fact, I think creatively expand the sense of speech practice that's actually found in the old text. And so aside from the ethical principles, most of what I'm presenting is more uh, a creative application of the material than reporting on anything which has been particularly worked out. And of course, a lot of it comes from um, my own experience, our own experience exploring how creatively to develop speech practice. 
wisdom in the simplest sense can be, can be seen as clear seeing of reality. Or you might say clear seeing of the nature of experience, nature of human experience. And it has that interesting parallel to wise speech in that uh, wise speech might be the expression of a wise mind that sees clearly. And so we want to ask, what does, um, what does speech look like that's based on uh, clear seeing of the nature of things? <clears throat> And I want to focus particularly on three aspects of wisdom that really, in, in a sense, go from the more gross to the more subtle in terms of uh, the meaning of wisdom and the meaning of seeing clearly our experience and having that reflected in our speech. So I want to talk first about the way that wisdom is reflected in acting ethically. There's a kind of practical wisdom that knows the positive or negative effects of following, in this case, the ethical guidelines or not. And there is an understanding, classical understanding of wisdom as in part a practical way of understanding what causes harm and what's helpful. What happens to the mind and heart when we're ethical and what happens when we're not ethical. There's a kind of wisdom there. And and we'll see that all of the forms of wisdom are going to be based on the close study of experience. That's really what we do with meditation. And I'll say more about that in a moment. The second understanding of wisdom is in terms of understanding the roots of suffering and the roots of freedom. That's probably the most central way that wisdom is understood in the tradition. A wise person knows the roots of suffering, knows experience well enough to know what causes suffering And what causes freedom? What causes happiness? What causes unhappiness? And in a sense, this is the pivot of our human lives, to know that. And so it's that wisdom which is right at the core. And then thirdly, I want to take a little bit of time in the last part of the talk to look at more subtle levels of seeing experience clearly and particularly look at how we understand concepts and language when we look closely at how they work in our experience and then ask, what does that imply about our speech practice? What might we learn about the use of language when we look closely at language itself? which is in significant part what we've been doing with the NBC, where we've been giving attention to certain types of language use, looking more carefully at how evaluations work or observations work and so forth. 
the words in the uh, Asian languages, or at least Pali and Sanskrit, are for wisdom, that we translate as wisdom, are uh, panna, panya, in the Pali, P-A-N-N-A, and prajna in Sanskrit, really the same word, P-R-A-J-N-A. And it really is a term that has two roots. Um, the first root, is a pan, uh, similar to um, Indo-European words like maybe pan-American, means something like greater, larger. And the, the, the nya, or in Pali, the N-A, or the J-N-A in Sanskrit, means knowledge or understanding. So wisdom literally is greater understanding or greater knowledge in the, in the original languages. And it has, the, it has the connotations of seeing reality, seeing experience clearly through careful study. And so there's very much uh, a scientific flavor when we look at, at um, the notion of wisdom with, with uh, contemporary eyes. I think that's one reason there's so much of a connection between uh, meditation and contemporary psychology and in even science. That the real intention of practice is to study experience carefully and let your, God, let your life be guided by careful examination. That's it. And, and meditation could be understood simply as a very simple, practical way to study experience. How do you study experience? One develops the capacity to see, which means developing some stability of mind, some concentration, and then you look. So you kind of work on the, as it were, the lens, because the lens gets foggy or gets blurred in our ordinary experience, or we can't, we can't, it gets, we're too distracted. So the, le- the lens, as it were, to use that metaphor, is always wobbly, right? And so we, we learn how to settle down and be able to use mindfulness to be able to, very, to see very directly and clearly. And then we simply look. And what we've been doing in our meditation practice, I think, as well as in the NBC-related practice, is simply looking carefully at a variety of objects. So we look at the body. We look at thoughts and emotions. We look at the feeling tone. We look at these different aspects of experience, uh, of different kinds of language, different aspects of language. And we're really asked to study carefully without necessarily any religious preconceptions. In fact, without any preconceptions. Just look carefully. And the idea is that out of the continual looking comes wisdom. And the wisdom 
brings freedom. I'll say more about that in a little while. So there's a famous uh, text that some of you know called the Kalama Sutta, in which the uh, Buddha came to a town called Kesaputta, which was at a crossroads. It was a place where all sorts of people were coming through. And particularly at that time, much like our time, there was, there was, uh, it was a spiritual crossroads. It's kind of like the San Francisco Bay Area, I like to think about. <laughs> Quesaputa was the San Francisco Bay Area. And on any given weekend in Quesaputa, you could do this seminar on this spiritual technique and this spiritual teacher was coming through and some of them were very expensive and appealed to the rich people and some of them were for free and, and so forth. And, and there was this great richness of opportunity to study these different spiritual perspectives, teachings, practices in Kesaputa. The people of Kesaputa were called the Kalamas. And the Kalamas, and then, and then the Buddha came through and for the for the Kalamas, the Buddha was just another person offering a seminar. <laughs> you know? and, and they went up to him and they basically said, look, we've got all these people coming through. Some of them even criticized the people who were last through last weekend. You know, and they badmouth the others, and they say we the, have the best spiritual teachings and so forth, and we are pretty confused by this, and why should we even think you have anything to offer, Buddha? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they spoke like that, but... Um, and the Buddha gave, gave an answer which is really um, quite important. And it's, I think it's actually inspired uh, thousands, if not millions of people. And you can read the text. Uh, it's called the Kalama Sutta. And with the internet being what it is, you can Google Kalama Sutta and instantly <laughs> you'll get a, a good version. So um, what was the Buddha's answer? There's actually, um, he gave a long answer. And I'll, I'll mention another part of his answer in, in a little while. But this is what this is the core of his answer. He said this, Yes, Kalamas, it is proper that you have doubt, that you have perplexity, for a doubt has arisen in a matter which is doubtful. Now look, you Kalamas, do not be led by reports or tradition or hearsay. He's basically going to say, look carefully at your experience, but... He said, this is 2,600 years ago, he's saying, don't be led by reports, don't be led by religious tradition. What? 2,600 years ago. Don't be led by hearsay. Don't be led by the authority of religious text. Nor by logic or inference. Nor by considering appearances. Nor by the delight in speculative opinions nor by seeming possibilities, nor by the idea this is our teacher. So he implicitly is saying, don't believe this because I'm saying it. But Kalamas, when you know for yourselves that certain things are unwholesome and wrong and bad, then give them up. And when you know for yourselves that certain things are wholesome and good, then accept them and follow them. 
And it really points to the whole essence of meditative training, which is to come to see our experience clearly without preconceptions. Just trying to see what's there, to look carefully. And of course, maybe we need to have some faith that that would actually be effective or that that can work. So it's maybe not entirely without preconceptions. You know, maybe people would trust the Buddha because he seemed glowing or he seemed to be a cool guy or, or whatever. But by and large, it's asking us to look very, very directly at experience. And so it's a kind of experiential knowing, not an intellectual knowing. There's a place for intellectual understanding, but the most basic kind of knowing is the kind of meditative knowing that we've been cultivating. And it's taken that that kind of knowing cuts through delusion. This is from the fifth century, from a classic text that I I mentioned uh, yesterday called The Path of Purification by Buddhaghosa about wisdom. Wisdom has the characteristic of penetrating the defining essence of things. Its function is to abolish the darkness of delusion, which obscures the defining essence of things. Its manifestation is absence of delusion. (laughs) So it has the characteristic of penetrating into the essence of things, it's said here. And what's quite important to see is that this understanding and insight into the nature of things is how freedom occurs and is how happiness is cultivated. And this is really, if anything, one of the characteristic um, innovations of the Buddha. And in, in the meditation we do, we talk about insight meditation. And the insight is the insight into the way things are. And so we cultivate stability of mind and peace and a sense of rest, calm, tranquility, and so forth. And those are, can be beautiful states, but at best, they're only means to an end. The end of practice, the goal of practice, is not to become peaceful as a main objective, but it's actually to gain insight. It's to see things as they are. And that's an important differentiation. And so the aim isn't to have deep concentration and peace, but it's to see clearly, to have insight into the nature of experience and particularly into the nature of um, what causes suffering and what leads to freedom. So I want to talk then about these three ways of looking more carefully at experience and make the links with, further links with our speech practice. The first has to do with studying the ethical principles and studying 
um, whether the ethical guidelines that we took the first evening, to give an example, of not harming and not taking that which is not given, uh, being careful with the energy of sexuality and speech and substances which shift consciousness, this is really the level, this is the entry level type of wisdom or the first and most basic kind of wisdom. This was what the Buddha was talking about with the Kalamas. You know, because he basically, when, when you look further in that text, he says, he, he asked them a series of questions. He says, what do you think, Kalamas, when greed arises in a person, does it arise for welfare or for harm? And they say, for harm. And this greedy person overcome by greed, the mind possessed by greed, kills living beings, takes what is not given, goes after another person's wife, tells lies, and induces others to do likewise, all of which is for long-term harm and suffering. Yes. And he goes on to go down the list of the ethical guidelines and says, what do you find when you look at human life? What do you find? Is it helpful to not harm others? What happens when you harm others, when I harm others? And it's a really an invitation to look carefully at experience. Letting the ethical guidelines, and we've been particularly focused on the ethical guidelines regarding speech. So it's an invitation to look and see what's there. It's the way that the ethical guidelines regarding speech can be a doorway for mindful inquiry. When do I depart from being truthful? Maybe sometimes in gross ways and sometimes in the subtle ways we've mentioned, exaggeration, half-truths, omissions. What does it feel like? What does it feel like inside when that occurs? That's what the invitation is. And the claim is that when we really look carefully at that, we develop a kind of wisdom. What does it feel like to utter speech that's not helpful, that may be more malicious or negative towards oneself or towards others? What does that feel like? Is that wise to do? What does it feel like? What's the experience of having speech come out of a closed heart or a fearful heart as opposed to an open and warm heart? In itself, this kind of looking at experience doesn't tell us how to open the heart, right? It doesn't tell us exactly how to do all these things, but it gives us a starting point. It gives us a perspective so that we can really orient our lives. We can say, when I look carefully, I can see that when I'm able to follow these ethical guidelines, let's say following speech, I feel more connected, to use the language that we've been looking at with NVC. And I more, maybe feel more vitality. And when I don't, I feel more maybe contracted and defended. One possible conclusion from looking, you know, and again, not to prejudge that, just to see what you see. Maybe you, maybe you have different view. It's possible. You know, what do, you, what do we see? And, and of course, there are a lot of subtleties and nuances to the questions. 
And again, it doesn't tell us, suppose I find myself often speaking with a closed heart, it doesn't tell me how to open my heart. I might have to look elsewhere to learn how to open it. Some of the meditative tools like the loving kindness and so forth. But that's the first, really the first level of wisdom that we can develop. And that can really be influential for our speech practice to, to work on that ethical level is fundamental. You know, and when, you know, here probably we have most of those ethical guidelines um, followed. I don't know about lunch, but maybe, but probably most of the time. But then when we go out or if we have, what happens when we have, um, you know, that kind of uh, jab at ourselves that we found with that exercise we did earlier today, where someone says something that's triggering for me. How can, you know, I can find myself very quickly going into not following the ethical guidelines, right? So we need to study how to also how to um, work with what gets in the way of that. But it's a starting point to have the wisdom of knowing that this is helpful or this is not helpful. The second level, as it were, of the three levels I want to talk about tonight is the level that's a little deeper in terms of saying what wisdom is. And this is the teaching or the exploration of what causes suffering and what causes happiness or what causes freedom. And probably at the center of the quest of the Buddha is a deep experiential inquiry into what leads to suffering. Looking really, really carefully, and we're really invited to do the same thing. To really, really study one's own suffering. When I first heard that, when I was first meditating, I wasn't at all interested in that. I was interested in peace and expanded consciousness and deep understanding. Suffering, other people were suffering. I didn't think I was. There a lot of suffering not to think I was suffering. <laughs> uh, But it's a, there's a turning point that occurs in our practice when we actually get interested in our own suffering. And rather than use meditation to mostly get peace and rest and relaxation, at a certain point, and we can't rush it, at a certain point, we become interested in how we lose it, how we suffer how we get confused. And that's why uh, Aaron was giving that instruction about be, I think we want to be really interested in our so-called mistakes. And that ultimately when we're, when we're studying experience, we're, we're interested in learning and in a sense uh, mistakes are very helpful 
And maybe there aren't any mistakes in a, in a, in a deep sense. They're just ways that we get feedback from experience. But we can be very, very interested in where we get stuck. You know, and again, that goes, may go against some of our tendencies. I know, for, speaking for myself, having been raised somewhat to be a perfectionist, when I brought that to meditation, of course, from an abstract point of view, I thought that learning was great, but I wanted to be perfect. And of course, if one's perfect, that means there's no learning and no learning even possible. Do you get the irony? <laughs> right, there's something, we have to leave that approach if we really want to learn. And I'm totally perfect, except I have no chance of learning. <laughs> so, so being interested when we get stuck or lost is a key pivotal moment in our practice. And studying our own suffering is quite important. And of course, we need generally to have a balance to do that. You know, and we need some confidence and some strength to be able to study suffering. And so it's not always there at the beginning. It can take some time to have that faith, confidence, strength, uh, understanding to, to explore suffering. But this second level of wisdom comes from the close study of the nature of suffering. The Buddha frames this in the most famous of his teachings called the Four Noble Truths. We could also translate that as the Four Ennobling Truths the four truths which make one a noble being. The most succinct way that he characterized uh, the four truths, particularly the first two, comes in one of my favorite teachings, which is called the teaching of the two arrows, which I, which I uh, like a lot. And some of you have heard me talk about this, and it's really one of my favorite teachings, so I utter it every chance I get. <laughs> well, not everyone. I don't, not at, you know, like family gatherings and so forth. But, <laughs> unless I really want suffering. <laughs> and that teaching goes like this. And it really, in the teaching, we can see a clear distinction between what we might call pain and what we call suffering. I think there's that kind of distinction. So the Buddha, much like we do in NBC, was very concerned with clear distinctions made in language. And the distinction between pain and suffering is quite important. It was something that he saw when he looked closely at experience. And he told this through a parable or a metaphor, uh, which he called that of the two arrows. It goes like this. We all are as if shot by the arrow of pain. To be a human being means to receive a certain amount of pain. This is the first arrow. Everyone receives this. The Buddha was using this metaphor to answer the question, since everyone experiences pain, what distinguishes a practitioner from a non-practitioner? 
And his answer was, the non-practitioner, when he or she experiences pain, reacts and shoots a second arrow, we might say, either at self or at another or both. So what, is, what are some examples of that? It would be when I experience something unpleasant, my tendency, as we can study in ourselves, is to push away in some way what I think is causing the pain. And so in some of the exercises we're doing, if someone says something which causes me to be reactive, which basically feels painful. Remember the ex- like the one that I was doing with Oren, where, where uh, I received certain words which started to make me feel unpleasant. Physiological changes, unpleasant. And out of that, I would tend to react more negatively. Maybe say something back to the person. So when someone says something nasty to me, and I say something nasty back to the person, I'm shooting the second arrow at another person in this case. I might then, um, someone says something nasty to me, I say something nasty back, I shoot the second arrow, and then I judge myself for saying something nasty to the other person, I shoot the second arrow both at myself and the other. (laughs) Um, When I have a difficult physical sensation, I tend to tense around and contract around the difficult physical sensation. This can cause a tremendous amount of pain. And in fact, in a medical setting, many studies would suggest that as much as 80% of what patients experience as pain is not the original stimulus, but it's the reaction to the original stimulus, second arrow. That's why meditation brought to a medical setting and teaching people to relax and not be so tense with physical pain can be so powerful. That's the second arrow. So many conflicts are people shooting second arrows at each other. Think of any conflict zone, especially protracted ones. And they're basically... Think of something like the Middle East. I have pain. I shoot an arrow at you because I think you're the cause of my pain. You do the same to me. I have more pain. I shoot an arrow at you. You have more pain. You shoot an arrow at me, and so on. I think that many conflicts boil down to being second arrow phenomena. Not so hard to see, right? Pretty simple way to look at it, meaning that when we have pain, we tend to react. So the Buddha said, what does the practitioner try to work for? The practitioner tries to work to not shoot the second arrow. I receive difficult language coming at me. I notice the tendencies to react with reciprocal negative language. But I train in NBC. I come to a retreat at Spirit Rock. 
I leave after a week, I go back in the world, nasty stuff comes at me, and I say, are you feeling... <laughs> are you feeling frustrated? <laughs> or I, and I, you know, I... And the person totally is knocked out by my incredible responsiveness and says, where did you go for the last week? Can I go there? No. no. Not guaranteed that that will happen like that. But we, we, we learn how to have a, a different option, right? We learn and we practice and we need to practice. And that's what we're really exploring. You know, and so we can learn to do that on the level of meditation. We learn how to be with the unpleasant without contracting around it. That's why sitting with unpleasant sensations when they're not causing harm, when they're just there for a little while, and watching our reactivity or doing the same with difficult emotions is core training. We need to do that. We won't be so successful when difficult words come at, of, come at us in everyday life unless we've studied how not to shoot the second arrow over and over again. And that's part of our core meditation practice, our mindfulness practice. And that's really, this is really at the heart of the Buddha's core teaching about the nature of suffering, the roots of suffering, and the possibility of not being ruled by suffering. That it's possible to be aware of these core tendencies to push away compulsively what's unpleasant or to grab hold compulsively to what's pleasant. You know, because the teaching of the two arrows really focuses more on the aspect of the unpleasant, but it really could be explicated in terms of grabbing hold of the pleasant. And this, these are the first two truths, the Four Noble Truths. The first, really, that there is the shooting of the second arrow. And the second, that the shooting of the second arrow comes from this compulsive reactivity to grab hold or to push away. And the third truth is that it's possible not to do that. It's possible not to be ruled by compulsive reactivity, to have more of a quality of wisdom and peace and understanding be the guide. And the fourth truth is the practical set of steps to move in that direction. And so when we apply this to our speech practice, we can really look and see how much of my unskillful speech is a, is, is a version of shooting the second arrow. How can I really study all those forces which lead me to be reactive? Not easy, right? They're deep roots of our reactivity. This is not overnight work. Not even the work of course, of a week for most of us. 
for all of us, I should say. That the roots that lead us to be reactive to shoot the second arrow are really, we have to study them in some depth. We have to look at what causes us to do that. We have to really know our patterns of reactivity with a lot of depth. That's why it's important to become so interested in our own patterns. So I'll say just a few words about this third level. Because I want to stay within the confines of time. I could, if you were interested, talk for another few hours about this last level. It was quite wonderful, but I won't. Um, This is really, in a sense, a more subtle dimension of wisdom, which is that we look, we have this basis in the wisdom of knowing what kind of behavior has what kind of results, whether it's helpful to follow greed or to follow maybe kindness and so forth. And we can study how this impacts in our speech. We can look at the two arrows. We can look at our reactivity. And we can also go to a yet more subtle examination of experience as we continue to practice, we increasingly have moments of deeper or more subtle examination of experience. And this goes to yet deeper understandings, deeper wisdom, really. So I'll talk very briefly about how as we look more closely, we can also even look into the very nature of concepts and of language and to see when we use language more skillfully or less skillfully. And we've already been doing that quite a bit. So for example, in meditation, we can get a pretty good sense of the difference between more direct experience of a physical sensation, of an emotion, of a feeling tone, of a thought, and the interpretations that often follow, or the evaluations. You know, and just as the distinction between observation and evaluation or interpretation is fundamental to the NBC model, it's also central to our meditative work that we really can tune in to this level of more direct experience and study experience not so much conceptually but experientially. This is what we do in meditation. Really crucial learning occurs, right? And we learn how to be able to say, that's my storyline. That's my interpretation. I have this experience, whether it's in meditation or talking or interacting with a spouse. And I blame myself for something, right? Or I blame the other person. And 
in our meditation, we're invited to come to the level of more direct experience. Similarly, in the NVC process, we're asked to come back to observations and feelings, both, both of which are much closer to direct experience than the interpretations or evaluations. And so as we look, we can begin to see what it's like to stay more connected with direct experience and what it's like to live more in a realm of concepts. There's a wonderful term from the teachings of the Buddha that suggests how we so easily live taken away by concepts. The term is papancha, which is usually translated as conceptual proliferation. And the suggestion is that this happens so often. It's like uh, I have, let's say, I have a knee pain sitting in the middle of the sitting. Instead of just saying, staying with the sensations, and maybe for, each, for some of us, even to use the word pain is already interpretive. And I have these strong sensations, and I have the thoughts, I should have brought my extra knee pad. I was too much in a rush. I'm always in a rush. Why am I so much in a rush? You know, and, but you know, I like that person's knee pad over there. That's a really nice looking knee pad. I think I'm going to get that. I wonder where you can get it. Maybe it's Spirit Rock Store. I think I'll go instead of the next sitting. I think I'll go to the Spirit Rock Store and look for a knee pad. This is Papancho. <laughs> and uh, interestingly, a lot of our lives are in Papancha land. And we get to study that. And the invitation is to live more in direct experience. And as we do that, we can start to see the different ways that we get fixated around language. We can see how we exaggerate in our language use. We can see how we use words like always, every. This is the absolute truth, and so forth. And those, when we really study language carefully, we can be suspicious of those terms and be on the lookout for them when they appear in our experience. we can also start to see how so much experience is coagulated around self. And we can, as we study experience more carefully, we can see more and more how experience is like a flow of continual sensations, emotions, thoughts. And when we look very closely at experience, we start to see that words and concepts are almost like superimpositions 
on the flux of experience. Used for practical purposes to help us get around in the world. And as we see more carefully how our core experience is much, has much more the nature of a flow and a flux. When our minds get quiet, we can see into experience in that way and even have experience of ourselves as this continual movement and flow and flux that takes us to a way of experiencing things that's much less separated from others, much less cut off. As we look more deeply at our own experience, we have much more of a sense of the interdependence of things. And we can see how we might live more in that way. You know, live more just with the continual flow of experience, which we, I think we actually do experience a fair amount. How, when have you lived and had this sense of this rich flow of experience without self-consciousness? It might have been when you were really connected with another person. Right? And deeply at home and confident and trusting. And there might not have been much self-consciousness. And there's just the flow of experience. Or it might have been in something like art or music, where there's you know, music, musicians and artists um, report these kind of experiences. They're also reported in sports. People have flow experiences where there's, the, where there's a sense of going beyond one's usual boundaries, having very little self-consciousness, and often there's a deep sense of interconnection. A friend of mine wrote a beautiful book um, called Playing in the Zone about sports in which he brought together the really deep spiritual experiences that, it can occur, that really occur in sports, in, in art, in music. You know, like, uh, for example, my brother is a musician, and when he's playing, let's say, with a group of four or five people, and they're at their most full improvisation, there's no self-consciousness, not much of a sense of self and other. There's just the flow of the music. And that becomes, I think, a metaphor. And of course, if someone thinks, wasn't that a great riff? At that moment, the music falls apart, right? Same thing if one's playing basketball and there's a continual connection. And then someone says, oh, that was a great pass I threw. (laughs) Something is lost. And so... I'm giving a short version of this last part of the talk, but really wanted to suggest that as we ground more in direct experience, we can start to see uh, concepts as limited. And we can be careful when we get caught up in concepts, whether it's the concept of self, get overly caught up with that, or whether it's a concept like nation 
or religion, we can have a sense that the reality of life occurs at a more fundamental level. And it's something that we explore in our practice. And so maybe, maybe just to end with that, that thought, we come more, and the metaphor really is our meditation, we come more just to a level of experience where there's a flow. Here are sensations, here are thoughts. As Oren was saying, at a certain level, when we are exploring, let's say, the needs of two people, there are just the needs present. And there's less of a sense of my need and your need. And there's more the sense of interdependence and how do we work to deal with these needs. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop here just with the invitation to keep on developing at whatever level of the cultivation of wisdom that you're at. And in a sense, we're developing all three of these levels. This first, more ethically grounded level of wisdom and can see its importance for our speech practice. Secondly, the understanding of the four truths, the roots of suffering, the roots of freedom, and we're all working at that level. And then increasingly, this more subtle aspect of wisdom of seeing in a more refined way into the depths of experience and coming to be able to see how that itself maybe implies a less rigid and fixed view of how we use language and what's true and more of a trust to let our speech come out of our direct experience rather than out of a lot of ideas, to let it really come out of the groundedness in our varied experiences, sensations, emotions, observations, and so forth. Let's just sit for another minute or so and let this settle some. Now look, you Kalamas, do not be led by reports or tradition or hearsay. Be not led by the authority of religious texts, nor by mere logic or inference, nor by considering appearances, nor by the delight in opinions, nor by seeming possibilities, nor by the idea this is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that certain things are unwholesome and wrong and bad, then give them up. 
And when you know for yourselves that certain things are wholesome and good, then accept them and follow them. Thank you for your kind attention. We have now a period of walking meditation and again we'll come come back for the loving kindness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.